Hey, everybody. I'm entertainment journalist Drew Taylor. And I'm filmmaker Charles Hood. And we host Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. But right now, we're about to launch our first ever universe-expanding miniseries. That's right. Get ready for Light the Fuse presents The Directors. We'll speak to filmmakers who have made iconic Paramount movies and get them to open up in a way that only we can. That's right. Listen to Light the Fuse presents The Directors, wherever you get your podcasts. What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Okay, we could also just have a chat. As a screenwriter, this 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 show is often my nightmare where I'm talking to not one but two directors. <laughs> just a suggestion. You want to have a show? Uh, Joe, for those of you joining us, I, Joe, Joe's suggestion was that I should start recording, so not an unreasonable suggestion. Uh, <laughs> This is The Movies That Made Me, with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, how are you? Hi. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for joining us. We're... um, uh, we're very excited. Uh, we're talking today to uh, Rebecca Miller, um, writer, screenwriter, director, actress, uh, documentary maker, um, uh, Personal Velocity, The Ballad of Jack and Rose, The Private Lives of Pippa Lee, um, Maggie's Plan, which I had not seen since it came out, and that my wife and I rewatched uh, last night and um, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed. Again, um, it's uh, uh, it's interesting how you it it evolves into a concept that by the time you're there feels like a screwball comedy but you get there in such a sort of naturalistic way you almost don't notice oh that's not i think it's a good (laughs) pandemic movie it's like a nice just remember how it was to me i don't know i haven't seen the movie during the pandemic but i imagine it must feel like I don't know, almost like a period film at this point. <laughs> Every, everything does now. Every, every movie does. Yeah, yeah. Particularly movies with crowd scenes. Yeah, they walk <laughs> around central, or they walk around the park, Joe, and they, they sit on benches with people they're not potting with. I mean, it's yeah. just... And they're not six feet away. <laughs> I know. Uh, they're holding sure hands. Yeah. <laughs> they're breathing in each other's faces. It's uh, Yeah, um, that was fun. That was based on an unfortunate... A strand of a friend of mine's unfinished novel. So, oh, said, I, I okay. feel like it was like a few chapters, and she said, "I have this feeling, maybe you know." And I was like, "Oh my god, this is what I've been looking for. It's something, you know, that I could, a, a kind of a hook, you know, that I could." And it was the first time I ever got that for free, and it was amazing. Oh, nice, yes, uh, wonderful. No, and it's and of course, and by the way, you should um, we should mention that uh, uh, Joe Joe Dante invented your leading man in that film, uh, Ethan Hawke. That's like, right. Uh, I'm right, well, right, did, Joe? Isn't I invented him earlier. Yes. <laughs> his, his mom and dad invented him. Well, you know. 
Tell me how you invented him. Say how. Uh, he came to an audition with another kid. He wasn't even going to be an actor. And uh, he, I just thought, this kid's kind of attractive and funny. Let's see if he can act. And he got the lead in his Paramount picture. And he was 14. Um, oh and his parents were, they, they said, okay. And then after the movie, they said, well, okay, now, now you can finish your education. So he didn't act again, I don't think, for about five years. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know you were the one who died. I didn't realize he had not acted before and did not, uh, did not want to. It wasn't, it wasn't high on his list of stuff. Well, well, but now he turned out to be pretty good. Yeah, he's all right. He <laughs> was so much fun to work with. Yeah. It's interesting because it was a film where actually one, two, three, the three leads were all writers. I mean, Greta Gerwig. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, Ethan. Yep. And uh, and Julianne Moore was also a writer of uh, children's books. So it was oh, unusual. I, I didn't know that. To have okay. three writers as your as your leads. I mean, were you, did you give them any leeway at all, or were you just cracking the whip and making them stay in the script? <laughs> well, I gave them a little leeway actually, because their improvs were. I mean, it wasn't even so much improvs. It was like little teensy rhythm changes, like. Were changes that were slight rhythm, well, and actually, and 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 um, also Bill Hader. So yeah. I mean, since it was really unusual, I was like, must we must be like there must be some, must be in some, uh, I don't know, unusual category of having writers. But uh, yeah, no, it was such a pleasure to work with them because they had so many good ideas about you know, and also they were just one. They understood tone so well because the tone of that film is very special and strange and it was nice to they they, they got it yeah yeah i know it, it works and that's right yeah bill Ader who's a, a great a great guest on our show probably, probably i would say one of the most intimidating guests on our show because uh he, he's he's um one of the concerns we have when we reach out to people is some of them feel like oh i'm gonna have to come on and be some sort of encyclopedia of film knowledge and we're like no we're especially trying to get away from that we're trying to get people to understand that you know, how you arrive is what's interesting and how you think about it and how you talk yeah. about it. Yeah. And then Bill Hader shows up and he is this human encyclopedia of cinema. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I know, he's a good friend of mine and he, it's incredible. Like occasionally I can mention something that he hasn't seen, but almost yeah. really not very often. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's, he's, he's the one like when, when people are like, should I listen to a representative uh, episode? Don't listen to Bill Hader. You will, you will hear that and go, oh God, <laughs> I can't do that. He's a professor. He's like, yeah. He's lived several lives of filmmaking all at once. Yeah. Yes. Film watching yes. all at once. Very much. But, but um, we're not here to talk about Bill Hader. We're not no. even here to talk about I your movie. Love him. <laughs> we love him though. Um, yeah, no, I just, I've, I've, uh, I've enjoyed your work for a long time. And one of the great things about this show is it's an excuse to uh, basically stalk people whose work we like and force them to talk to us about movies. Um, so. oh, what a pleasure. I mean, I love that. And I really have given some thought after we spoke that first time and uh, about, you know, what would I talk about? And I guess I, I guess I have to begin with a <laughs> film that I, uh, I think I was about 11. And it's the first film that I remember um, being even going to in the movies that was because I lived way out in the country on a dirt road and my mom, it was snowing and she had promised that she was going to take me to the movies. And we went to, I think it was a, I'm, I'm thinking it was a mall. I don't even I don't know if it really was a mall, but she, she drove me through this 
semi-blizzard to watch The Way We Were with Barbara Streisand. Wow. um, Yeah, and Barbara Streisand and um, Robert Redford. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I saw it again recently because I thought, well, if I'm going to talk about it all, I better watch it again. And, you know, it's not maybe the greatest film in the whole world, I guess, looking at it now. But when I was that age, I thought it was so romantic. And there was something about her, her character. She plays this very overbearing Jewish woman uh, with a, with a very goyish man who's uh, Robert Redford. And it's about people who are essentially incompatible kind of. And in a weird way, it's sort of saying stick with your own kind by the end of the movie. <laughs> oh my God, you're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a little weird. I was like, wait a minute. I don't remember it being like that. But I, I think I, I think I was struck by it because it was, here was this sort of smart, funny, awkward woman as the center, as a central character. And, and being a somewhat awkward, somewhat smart uh, funny girl um, who's always sort of saying the wrong thing to boys and stuff. I think I was interested in that character. And uh, yeah, definitely held my attention. I found it really, and it was just that much a, a, above what I should have been watching. I mean, it's quite tame, but it was just a little bit more than I was had ever experienced before. So it was very exciting for me. So that would be the first, yeah, the first, real drama my parents used to 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 show movies on 60 millimeter they had a 60 millimeter projector and when I was really little we used to watch they used to run films on New Year's Eve um in the they get like from the library or I don't know where they got them yeah they must have been from the library I remember I watched uh the battleship Potemkin and the great the great the great scene of the baby carrot going down the steps right and the baby falling out, I think the baby falls out and cracks his head, unless that was something that I made up. I was, I, I mean, it was like seared into my brain, just stamped in the image of that baby carriage. It was so powerful. And I think that was one of the first times I really uh, understood what cinema could do in a, you know, in a pure way. And then the other thing that they would show would be Monsieur Hulot's Holiday which are also great, <laughs> which are very funny, very funny films and just do everything totally, you know, visually, which was, um, you know, quietly educating me in cinema, I guess. Sure. I mean, I can, I can see a kid relating to those. It's, it's how old were you when you were watching Potemkin? Potemkin, I was probably really young. I mean, I was probably like eight or nine years old. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, yeah, they didn't condescend to kids. Right. Those days, it was like you just mucked. I was I was the only child at home. Like I was one of several children, but no nobody else was around. So they I would just come along to whatever. And uh, yeah, and so I they weren't they weren't going. Rebecca here, we're showing you this great movie. Yeah, you, you eight year old. No, not really. I, mean, I was just <laughs> always there. I used to sit like sleep under the table when they were having people over, and I, I don't know. I just didn't. Mm. So it was like they just sort of it was like a, sort of like a cat. I was like the cat. <laughs> <laughs> And, and were you, I want to go back to, to the way we were for a minute. Were you at, at the age you saw it, were you aware of the, the, um, I mean, she really is a extremely, you know, very Jewish actress right. and he is 
he's not very goy. He's like the ultimate goy actor, I think, really. Yeah. I mean, were these differences you were conscious of at the time? Huh. It's interesting. I'm not really sure because, you know, my father gave me the name Rebecca because and spelled it R-E-B-E-C-C-A because he was worried that if the Jewish spelling R-E-B-E-K-A-H might lead to anti-Semitic remarks or, you know. So there was definitely a sense somewhere in my family that, you know, that existed. Um, and that, but culturally, <clears throat> I think I felt culturally Jewish without having any real sense of being a Jew because I was surrounded by Christians, went to a Christian school. My neighbors took me to Catholic church. I don't know what I thought. I think I may have, I may have recognized in her certain behaviors that felt familiar, right. a warmth, a heat, almost an overheatedness. That was like something that I was like, oh yeah, this feels like a bit home, like home to me. And, uh, or an exaggerated version of that. Um, I don't know that I really thought of it in, in any conscious way that way though. Right. Just sort of, you absorbed it over time, or something. Yeah, I. Yeah, my relationship to all that was quite complicated. I'm still trying to figure it out now, actually. Uh, <laughs> so, but we will not go into that right now. <laughs> <laughs> I will stick to movies then. Um, yeah, I remember. You know, obviously, <laughs> it's such a, it's such a difference in in gender, right? I do believe there are some distinct differences. Uh, you know, I, I think we're probably around the same age. And I think that, um, you know, uh, I do remember being taken to the way we were. And um, yeah, nobody, nobody had to take me through a storm or anything. I was probably kicking and screaming. And my first recollection of it is just that when it isn't mush, it's politics. And all of everything about it is just boring the hell out of me. Oh and, yeah, um, that's really fun. <laughs> I was riveted from the very first frame of the movie. Also, her nails fascinated me. I was like, I used to cut little tape, like scotch tape, out and put it at the ends of my nails, and we have have long nails. And I was constantly pretending to be a secretary in those days. That was my ideal job. So I was like, <laughs> so the fact that she had long fingernails always was in itself mesmeric. Yeah. It didn't take much, really. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. I love that. I love that. And uh, then, yeah. I was going to say the next film, like if you're looking at, I mean, we put Balcha Potemkin in the beginning there, I guess, yes. like, along with Monsieur Lowe. Then we have The Way We Were, <laughs> which is like hard to put them together. Then we have, then I'd say Annie Hall was like enormous for me. Oh, sure. Uh, I was in high, like early high school, like maybe a freshman or something. And I was a lot like Diane Keaton at that time. Like I talked a lot like her, that whole thing of not really being able to finish sentences. It was very strange. Like my boyfriend at the time said, oh my God, this is so weird. You're so much like Diane Keaton. So, or Annie Hall. So, but also there was something about the, um, the way she develops that I think I found really interesting at the time. The idea that you could sort of leave certain things behind. You could yeah. leave certain kind of insecurities and I don't know, uh, an aspect of yourself that you could transform, that you could become something different. Mm -hmm. Something that I, 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 I think I was very struck by. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's an amazing film. Um, and that's one that, uh, 
uh, I go back to all the time and um, just constantly marvel that it's 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 great every single time. It always delivers. And you know, when it was uh, being shot under the title Anhedonia, that's right. Yeah. Um, it 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 was really 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 long, and uh, there the, the the version that exists now, which is basically about Annie Hall and Woody, um, is only a subplot <laughs> in all of the material they took out. Because really? apparently there was enough shot for two other movies. Is that so? What was? Do you know what it? What I don't. I've never seen. I would footage. love to know. Yeah, it's in Ralph Rosen's. He was the Ralph Rosenblum of the editor. It's in his book. There's a lot of explanations about what. what, what That's out. so interesting. It's just very. Uh, it's like a wizardry. The way that he he the, the film is kind of very wizardy. It's like sleight of hand. You don't know how you got. Mm -hmm. suddenly mm -hmm. you're there and so it's just this wonderful like so magical and so gentle the way he does it too and there's so much i don't know it's wistful and it, it, it's a it's a gorgeous film i think yeah I, i'd never seen it you know i mean i was a kid i'd never seen anything like it but i just remember the way that he just you know it was all things he had been seeing in, in foreign films and 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 so forth and there's a lot of great sort of literary tricks but I'd, I'd never seen a a narrative film told like that um and you know with with sort of the breaking of the wall and the the, the constant bouncing around in time and yet somehow it always remains emotionally consistent the journey that they're on um it, but it, it will was, always live forever for the marshall McLuhan scene yes it will <laughs> 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 I think what's amazing about it is that the structure is super um, sort of complicated, but it doesn't, you never feel that. It's like, right. it's like yeah. you just feel like it's water running from a tap. Yeah. It just yeah. feels that natural. And yet what it took, I'm sure if you're telling me that there was an extra two hours to cut out, what, you, what it took to create that structure uh, must have been really, really something. I, I'd be so curious to know his process of how that all came about. Yeah. Yeah, stuff like that when it works is amazing. It, all, it reminds me of sort of, I don't know, the way, the way you would talk about movies when you were like 10 years old and describing to be your friends. You know, you wouldn't, you'd tell them the whole story because you didn't know how to truncate anything, but you wouldn't sort of go ABC. You'd start with your favorite scene and then you'd go, oh, wait, 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 wait. And then you tell them some other scene. And by the time you're done, you've sort of, woven this sort of weird narrative structure and yeah. uh, that film seems to fall into it so naturally it's just beautiful it cuts out all the boring parts yeah and yes that, that's what editing is all about that's right not <laughs> a way of like making that make sense right like so you know just if you know i i think i think that hit probably him honestly has been maybe the biggest influence on me as a filmmaker i'd say I mean, certainly when I made Personal Velocity, that was, in fact, three feature films with the boring cards cut out, parts cut out. I mean, like really like the essential of three films. But but um, also just in general, the way that he uses the camera and the sort of timber of his comedy, along with other, there are certainly others. But but uh, yeah, that was that was one of the worst films that really stuck with me. At the time, it felt more personal about myself and the similarity to this character. But then later, it became, you know, something else. Yeah, that's fun too, isn't it? When you sort of watch a movie seem to evolve along with you and realize it's about more than you thought it was the first time you saw it. And yeah, it's because um, you're different. Yeah, the movies yeah. the same, but you're different. Yeah, yeah. 
Oh yeah, and sometimes it, it works the opposite way, which is that you love to film and you look back on it. Well, you know, the way we were as an example, I look back at it and I just, I, you know, I, I, it's not a great film to me anymore. But, uh, but even more, even as an adult, I, there are films that I really loved and I look back on them and they don't have the same effect on me. Or films that I can love now that I couldn't love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, yeah, I, I once uh, uh, wrote a script years ago that was um, a, a movie I had loved as a child, and I went back and saw it as an adult, and it was so awful. I was devastated, and I thought, oh, wait a minute, maybe I could write the movie that I thought I saw. <laughs> and ended up writing the version that my head had been fixing and changing for all those years. It was really? kind of fun. Really? And you actually wrote it? Yeah. Yes, it sold it even. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, I, I won't say the movie, but um, okay. and it's it's one Joe might know, but uh, that, that I so guarantee cool. you've never seen it. Such a good idea. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like how do you how do you you know it was lemons lemonade that kind of thing, but because um, I really was I was very sad. This was like one of the greatest action movies I'd ever seen as a kid, and it was just it just lay there. Um, <laughs> anyway, but uh, uh, cool. Well, what what's next? Well. I guess, I don't know. I mean, if I'm going in order kind of like a bigger films that really shocked me or gave me a huge jolt, there's a couple of films. One is Repulsion by mm. Roman Polanski, which put me in such a strange mood for oh, days afterwards. <laughs> sort of uh, Catherine Deneuve going slowly out of her mind, all by herself, living all by herself in the apartment. And it creates, it's like one of the most, it's a film that really creates you understand her mood. You yeah. understand what she is going through and how her alienation. It's really a kind of about alienation, I think, as much as anything. And so well and so deeply that you feel like you're becoming her, like the wall between, well, at least that was my experience, that the wall between me and her was like sort of dissolved. And I just found it so disturbing. I mean, maybe that was just also the way that I tended to look at films, which is just to like, you know, they sort of like switch places with them really easily. But I, I, uh, the way that it was photographed, like I, to this day, like, and I haven't seen it in years, but her staring at this crack in the sidewalk, yes. yeah, uh, which is just a crack in the sidewalk. And yet her staring at the crack in the sidewalk is so disturbing. Uh, and it's beautifully photograph film and yeah. you know um and then she ends up you know stabbing the, the landlord or whatever it is and which is just the whole thing is just so uh the disparity between her beauty and her violence and her her kind of strange calm and yet you know that she's she's boiling mad inside of herself mm -hmm. and and uh yeah, I just I couldn't even talk for a long time after that film. Wow. <laughs> well, it is it is a brilliant movie, and I, I saw it when it came out, and uh, I had never seen anything like it. I mean, it's so uh, it's so intense, and um, the filmmaking is just so impeccable that um, I you know I, I sort of that was the first Polanski picture I'd ever seen, and I thought, I, where's this guy been? And you know, then I discovered he had made one other feature and some shorts. Which I went back and saw the shorts, but then I I just followed him, you know, and I just said, you know, I, I'm sure he's going to go on to great things, and then, and then, Rosemary's Baby, you know, and that's which is as close to a perfect movie as I've ever seen. 
that's such a great film. And so before that it was Knife in the Water. Yeah. Is that the first one? Yeah. Which is also pretty great. I mean, that's it is, but that's but Repulsion was his first movie in English, which was yeah. which is always a big step for uh, you know, filmmakers from places yeah. where they don't speak English. Uh, yeah, and, and, and it was essentially a horror film. It was made for a horror film company. Uh, and um, I think it, it turned out to be much more arty than they uh, expected, but it also turned out to be much more successful than they expected. Oh, it's fantastic. Also, Catherine Deneuve is so great in it, isn't she? Yeah. She's, so, she's so a sphinx-like. And, yeah, and she's it's got one of the great last shots in movies where they pan over from the, from the rec department and, and they just look at all the stuff in the apartment and then they go, they go down these photos uh, on the mantle and there's a photo of her as a little girl and they yeah. just zoom into it and, and you look at it and she's, she's obviously crazy. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I know. It's so good, right? I love that. I love that moment. Funny, that is a film I remember, I mean, not shot by shot, but I remember so many shots of that film. Of how Vividly, that yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, the, the, uh, yeah, the striking imagery for such um, kind of, I mean, it's a moment in an apartment. How do you get so much <laughs> incredible visual? Uh, and the apartment changes depending on how, how crazy she gets. The yeah. apartment gets bigger. Uh, By the way, I would say, I think it's the first time I've, I've ever said this about a movie because a lot of people um, you know, listen to the show and are looking for things to you know, recommend. It's one of the things we like to do. I would say if you've never seen Repulsion, wait until the pandemic's over. I've, I can't imagine a worse movie to <laughs> watch right now. Or may, I guess suppose so. Yeah. Yeah. If you think you got a bad, um, oh my God, I cannot imagine watching Repulsion right now. I might commit suicide halfway. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, it's a really, really effective. I mean, then, you know, the tenant also mm -hmm. similarly, mm -hmm. actually was the tenant also, I think uh, I saw that much, you know, a good deal later, but, um, but the tenant is absolutely horrifying. He gets into some, like, you know, the, the bit in the tenant where he finds the tooth in the wall. The, that one, remember that? It's such a, yeah. And he ends up, oh God, that's another great one, which I, I wonder if people are watching that, those films enough right now. I mean, <laughs> I guess things might be bad enough. Um, yeah. Another film, like, from that period when I was in college watching films, and I was a painter then, you know, so my film watching was, I would go to the um, Student Film Society or whatever. The other film that I remember being really, really just overwhelmed by, which is actually kind of a horror -y sort of film, is Cries and Whispers by Ingmar Bergman, mm -hmm. which is just, I mean, I, again, it was like, it was such an extraordinary film. Like the way that he uses color in that film, the red of the walls, the women, the way that the women are both like, it's kind of like a painting, but it's also, they're so um, real and the acting is so amazing. And then you get sort of, the, the way that the dead are kind of grabbing the living. It really is a horrifying film, but also great. I mean, he would be my other, like the person. I remember trying once when I was trying to figure out how to make films, um, taking Persona, which is another Bergman film, and trying to break it down scene by scene for myself, like in lists of all his scenes. And I thought, I'm going to break this. And the whole thing made no sense. Like all my work... <laughs> 
was like the ravings of a mad person by the end of it. I had no more idea of how he created this masterpiece than, you know, get it. That's amazing. So you're just trying to break it down narratively, you mean, or? Yeah, I wrote down every single scene. I tried to break down movements of scenes, you know, sort of acts, but also movements within acts. I was like, how did he, you know, what? Because, you know, like all magic, you can't break down magic. You can you can read a screenplay and you can like look at a shot list. But that's still not going to really teach you how a film is great or not great. And like films that really take off and have liftoff, you know, especially great poetic films. It's like it's impossible to, to figure out what that is. That's the that's the movie where uh, the two women are on the beach and they tell a story uh, about something that happened to them. Prize and Witness? No, in, in Persona. Persona, yeah. And uh, I saw the picture once, and then the second time I saw the picture, I kept waiting for the events that they described because I they had described them, described them so vividly that I had imagined that there was actually a scene in the movie depicting what they were talking about. And then I realized that, no, they're just going to talk about it. And it just made such an impression on me while the first time I saw it that I, I just assumed that I had seen it enacted. Wow, that is so cool. I mean, it's, that's the only time that ever happened to me in a movie. Yeah, they, they switched identities. It's two women, a woman and her, who seems to be catatonic and her nurse, and they kind of reverse, they switch identities. And yet the way that it's done is this, you know, you could imagine that really just being a horror kind of thing, and yet it isn't really. And yet, what is it? What is well, a lot, a lot of his movies? A lot of his movies are very close to being horror films without actually being horror films. <laughs> so interesting you say that because I had never really, until recently when I thought about Cries and Whispers, and I thought that really is kind of like a horror film. I hadn't thought of it that way. It well, The Magician, way. Hour of the Wolf, yeah. uh, Virgin Spring. Virgin I mean, Spring, yeah. <laughs> pretty yeah. close to being horror films. And The Virgin Seventh Spring Seal. Was. And The Seventh Seal, which is like the ultimate horror film. Yeah. Although it's pretty funny, too. Well, hard. I mean, <laughs> you, you have seen Alvin Gastelum meet Frankenstein. That is true. I mean, that is true. It, it doesn't have to be scary all the time. Yeah, I, yeah. I think I've said this before <laughs> on the show, but but it's just the thing about Seventh Seal that always gets me is it, it has such a, even I go back to it going, oh, God, here comes homework. And you forget how really, really, really funny it is. <laughs> I just don't think of Bergman as, as that. But uh, We just don't think of death as funny. No. Not, not mine, at least. Um. It's definitely funny. <laughs> yeah. Also, Summer Night is hilarious. Like, it's so, I mean, more obviously funny. But I guess he doesn't use suspense or, like, he doesn't really necessarily want to make you afraid in the same right. way horror does, right? It's like the horror, the horror, he's, it's, it's not the same because it's, yeah, it's, he doesn't use film to create fear no, it's like in the silence, you know, the, the horror is the silence of God that, that they're, that yeah. apparently to it's him. It's existential horror. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Which is a different genre. Yeah. <laughs> Much classier. <laughs> Much classier. And I like, you know, like a little existential horror. I get very scared in horror movies, though. Like actual horror movies. Oh, I envy that. <laughs> really? I can really, I can't even... Like there's films I still haven't watched. I'm still saving because I'm still too scared. Like, I don't know exactly when I think I'm going to be, you know. What, like The Exorcist? The Exorcist I saw uh, early on, I think I well, saw. If you saw that, I don't know what you're saving because <laughs> they, don't, they don't get much more scary than that. I think I saw it. 
I think I was interrupted somehow. Something happened. I was in high school. It got interrupted. I don't know if I've watched the whole of the movie. Something happened outside the theater. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Was, or call the police. Or call the police, like she should have, exactly. <laughs> What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm hot. like, for example, The Shining, for some reason, I haven't seen because the idea of The Shining scares me to death. So I, I just haven't seen it. Maybe it's because the idea of a writer who just keeps writing the same. <laughs> 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 That's the really scary part for me. I don't know. Yes. That yeah. my writing could, in fact, drive you insane is something that I've often suspected. There, that, no, that really does tap into something, doesn't it? That, that, that terror that like one day you're going to walk back to your desk and pick up the thing you're working on and realize that all you've been doing is typing gibberish. <laughs> it's like, well, that's terrifying. That's terrifying. <laughs> well, because I do think that writing is a, is, a, is a process which can drive you quite crazy. I mean, it's one of the reasons that for me, it's easy, you know, it's really good that I, I get to make, <laughs> you know, make films that I don't write all the time because there's something about that process that, that, it's hard for me to do all the time. Yeah, no, it's uh, it can be grueling. It's it's uh, to me, it's just the fact that there's no other, you know, if you fall asleep in front of your computer or typewriter or whatever you work on with a blank page, and you wake up two hours later, it's still going to be blank. Whereas there are so many other jobs involved with making films where. You know, if you sort of slow down or lag, there's 20 other people around who can kind of pick up the pace and get things done. And, you know, I've, I've seen movies. This is not the optimum way where like shots are, you know, getting the director's asleep and they're shooting stuff. <laughs> it's like that can happen. But not as a writer. It's just it's just you and that blankness. It's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, much, it's so lonely. <laughs> So lonely. It's, per it's, it's like, in a way, it's perfect for the pandemic, but it's also like, it makes it even worse. The yeah. pandemic. Yes. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, I guess, yeah. So, Cries and Whispers was a big one. Persona was a big one. I would say, you know, the film that really made me into a filmmaker. Like, mm -hmm. I was a painter. I was living in, uh, I was living in Germany in, um, in the middle 80s, I was living in Germany in Munich on a, in, a, in a kind of artist colony. And I went to the Cinematheque in Munich on my own and uh, took the trolley in there. And uh, I saw um, La Dolce Vita uh, by Fellini for the first time on film, like I saw it in the Cinematheque. And uh, it just blew me away. I mean, it just blew me away. So, uh, 
and I know it's a very famous film, it's not an obscure film, but my God, it unified everything that I loved because I had written before, you know, I had written short stories and stuff like that. And the idea, like the way that it unified storytelling and like pure visual art and music. And I, it was actually kind of ruined my life for a while because I left there thinking, now what do I do? Like I was completely <laughs> settled. I was just totally settled into the idea that I was a painter and I was going to go a certain track and, you know, I was going to do this and I was going to do that. And I was going to try and get a gallery and I was going to keep working. And I was going to, you know, maybe go to grad school and all this sort of stuff. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh no, oh no. You know, and I remember that feeling. It was uh, both exciting and terrifying. And I think that the thing that like looking back on it, that first image of the, of the statue of Christ being like, in a helicopter, like being dangling from a helicopter, and then it dang, and kind of the helicopter flies over these semi-clad women in bikinis who are kind of like the guy who's writing, you know, in the helicopter is trying to get the names and numbers, the numbers of the women who are on the on the on the terrace of the of the roof of the building, and there's flirting and Christ is dangling, and it was like this like perfect combination of like humor, irony, and also the theme of the film, like the, 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 the idea of sort of spiritual vacuity or what, what's been lost in society and the sort of sense of, a, you know, like managing to kind of sneak that in with just through images and through, you know, and how kinetic it was. And it was just the whole film just felt so alive to me. I, uh, it was really like a kind of conversion, like I had a conversion. Wow. I, uh, I was like, it was nice because it was it was nice and awful. <laughs> <laughs> and and how how long did it take for you to kind of get, you know, work through that uh, crisis, if you will? Well, you know, I knew it. I realized it didn't go away. The feeling didn't go away. And I thought, oh, what am I going to do? So what I started to do was I, I took a course. I went to the new school and I took a course you know, in filmmaking, you know, because I had no idea how to make a film. And they had Bolexes. And I made, I started making these short films, which um, were based on dreams that I had, because that's what I was doing in painting anyway. I was working a lot from dreams. And so I started making my, I, I literally used my best friend, Barbara, to reenact something. And we, and I'm using 16 millimeter film and we would cut on Bolex, on, on, uh, on the, what do you call them? You know, the, the, the flatbed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I cut them all myself. And then I would put them in these sculptures that I was making. I made sculptures that would, they were, they were these like boxes, these wooden boxes, which contained these little films that were loops. They, oh, wow. were loops. Okay. they had no sound. So they were completely these moon scapes. And I showed them in a gallery a couple of times, you know, or sometimes they were in these, in these things. And sometimes they were triptychs set into the wall, um, sort of acting like paintings, but moving paintings. And I would go to the, to the aquarium and paint it to the New York Aquarium in Brooklyn and, 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 and shoot the, the beluga whales there. And then I would shoot, I would, you know, somebody had twins, I would go shoot their twins. And I was just making really these very obscure films. I wasn't necessarily ever thinking, I'm gonna make films that human beings are gonna pay money to go see in a movie. That was still way, way, <laughs> way far away. You know, I was coming at it from a very different perspective. But then I made this film 
Well, I was in a film called Regarding Henry to pay for this because I needed to pay for a sculpture, which was going to cost a certain amount of money. And uh, no, no, that was I, I, I made Regarding Henry to pay for something for my short film, which I which I which I ended up making this short film and I showed it at the. Um, IF, independent film, IFC, IFM. And uh, yeah, and so I sort of, that was a slightly more, it was still an allegorical film, but it had sound and it was a more normal film. So, so then I began to think, oh, maybe I want to make fiction films. And then I wrote my first fiction film. It took many years, but I got the money together and that's how I started. But um, yeah, it just sort of unlocked something. And, and so I came at it from a purely visual route. Um, but also had this sort of storytelling background of writing short stories and stuff. Uh, and then. So I just, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Uh, just that sudden realization that you needed to shift gears. Um, I can't imagine. Yeah. That must've been terrifying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was a very, very committed painter mm. and, and, and it was, uh, like it was terrifying. And, and there was a long period of time where the two things coexisted. It's not like I just abandoned them. Right. They, they sort of coexisted for a long time. But it was terrifying, and especially because of what it does to your identity, you know? It's like all of a sudden, it's like falling out of love with somebody that you thought you were going to stay with forever. That's, yeah, I was yeah. thinking that. It, it sounds like that. Right, exactly. Or realizing you want to be a bigamist. It was more like that. Because <laughs> 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 but I think but as you, are you still painting? No, I was going to say, no, that 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 really the, the painting became in a way, the painting became the filmmaking. And then I, right. I was and then my secondary art really became or my not my secondary art. It's not my secondary art, but the art that came up was my companion art really became writing also fiction because mm -hmm. partly I learned how to write fiction because I couldn't get money for the films I was trying to make. And so I was just I, I just thought, well, let me try and learn how to write fiction and 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 turn all this energy that I into writing screenplays into writing fiction and, and I got published and then that led actually to personal velocity um, because my friend Gary Winnick asked me if I had anything and I said let's you know we could do something based on these short stories so I had given up filmmaking um, I thought I had because I couldn't get any money to make uh, the ballad of Jack and Rose which was I, I wanted to make that next after Angela and Angela was my first film and that was a film that had won some awards but didn't really make any money and I just couldn't get any money for Jack and Rose. And so um, I thought I, I can't spend the rest of my life waiting for people to give me money to make art. And it was so ridiculous, especially coming at it from a point of view of a painter, you know, where you just paint. If you can at least have paints, enough paints right. and a piece of wood, you can make a painting. Yes. And, uh, you know, and I, 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 I have found that being, for me, really being able to write fiction has, you know, has been very important to me. So that while I'm waiting for people to give me money to make film. But doesn't that run the family? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> true. It's true. Uh, not plays. I I don't write plays. I don't would never presume to do that. Um, I, yeah, that's an intimidating form. But I guess I guess whatever the thing you don't do is yeah. I mean I don't know. There's playwrights who are for me the really important intimidating thing is musicians. Like I find yeah. that absolutely like mind blowing. I don't understand how that happens. That's an alien thing. That is just an really, alien thing. Like, I yeah. just don't understand. Or dancers, those kind of people, like people like that, I just can't imagine. I can't imagine. But anyway, when I was when I was getting ready to make Angela finally, and I had I had 
made these sort of these short films and been making films for a while, at least of this very experimental um, kind of dream, dreamlike films. Uh, I don't mean, when I say dreamlike, I don't mean like all fuzzy. I mean that they were, they had no narrative requirements within them. Uh, I was watching, and I was getting ready to make Angela. I think I watched Badlands a lot. Badlands was a really important film to me. Um, mm. Even though I didn't really use voiceover in, uh, I didn't use voiceover at all in Angela, um, which was my first film, uh, I ended up using it a lot in other films like uh, Personal Velocity and um, The Private Lives of Pippa Lee. And I just loved the use of voiceover in Badlands so much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she's, uh, it, it's, yeah, it's amazing because that's such a, you know, I mean, there's even a rule you're not supposed to do voiceover, you know, and, and there's, there's reasons for that. But then you see something like Badlands, and it's like, well, it didn't stop Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. <laughs> or Scorsese. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely love, I mean, look, of course, if voiceover is just telling you what you don't need to know, then right. that's different. But if it, the thing about film is that it has to keep moving forward, pretty much. It has to keep moving forward. But voiceover gives it a chance to go vertical you know while you move forward sure so it's like it it can give you information that deepens your understanding of a character or deepens your understanding of the past or feeling or you know uh, gives you a kind of it's an you know it's a kind of digression while the film is still moving forward and it also sometimes gives you the option to fly in terms of time you know, can, you can fly all over the place yeah. with, with voiceover. And that's what I use in personal velocity and Pippa Lee. I, 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 I used it all the time for, for that. And I, um, and that's where Scorsese, like, you know, the great you know, casino, the amazing sequence where he describes how the casino works. But in general, like his, his desire to just move from one world to the other, to the other, to the other. And you, you, when you really look at that, I mean, it's just unbelievable how you're, you're flying all over the place and he uses it really is a liberating tool yeah 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 it is and it also it erases the difference between movies and books you know the whole the whole thing about books is that you know this way you know you you can't make a great movie out of great expectations because it's you don't have enough time uh and and because there's so much digression it's it's the reason people can't make good movies out of ray bradbury stories is because the the writing is so much part of what of what the movie, what the story is voice that you can yeah. put nice images but they don't have the same resonance as they do when there's a, a narrator telling you what yeah. what those images mean and and sometimes you can carry tone that can go against just the way you can use music dissonantly you can use you know obviously voiceover dissonant and it can carry humor or irony or you know, you could be watch, looking at a pathetic image and hearing something funny and it can kind of clash mm-hmm. again. Yeah. Like, you know, so it's, it's just a, it's, it's just a, I, I definitely, I think, yeah, I'm never, I'm never sure where that came from the idea of no voiceover. Well, it's but, just, there's so many rules that are, and I, I think a lot of them come from sort of dopey how to be a screenwriter books. And they're based on the fact that, you know, I probably can think of 10 movies that use voiceover badly. But the lesson to glean from that is not don't use voiceover. It's don't don't do scenes that don't work. You know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> don't do pretty scenes with voiceover, right? I remember, like I think it was Robert McKee had a thing about how you should never set scenes in the back of a car or at a restaurant table. And of course, immediately I think of like you know Brando and Steiger and on the waterfront or right. my dinner my dinner with Andre, which is a complete violation of all that. You're like, 
yeah, just do, do what works is the rule. I think that one should follow and pretty much all the others are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I mean, like one of the great, you know, voice of the films is Jules and Jim, which is just, an, you know, just a great liberator of a film. Like you watch that and you think, oh yes, anything is possible. Even now. I mean, I think it still feels like a very fresh and, you know, really interesting film like still now even in terms of its ideas like it hasn't aged very badly it hasn't it doesn't seem so many films now sometimes like you look at them and you you have to forgive them many things like you have to forgive them their attitude toward women you have to forgive them their attitude toward race you have to forgive them their whatever you know but this film i don't i mean i feel like you know maybe barring certain details like i think that it's pretty I mean, you could say, I guess that Simone Signore is like an archetypal, irrational female, you know, in a way, but she seems so much to me, so much more than that. And so much somebody who's desperate about the confinements of her age and her, her period of time. You know what I mean? Like, it's almost like she refuses to be contained in her own era or something. I don't know. I, lo I, I love that film. And I love, you know, I love the way it's written. Really love the way that's written. Yeah, I haven't seen that in more, more years than I'd care to admit to. It's but. so worth unearthing, because especially if you're ever interested. I mean, I watch it many times because I am really obsessed with voiceover, actually. <laughs> I mean, I use it a lot. And I I mean, I haven't used voiceover in every film at all. I mean, obviously not with Maggie Spain and stuff. I think there's just some films where you need it, and some, especially if you want to fly around in time. That's when, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then there's some films where I, I look at them now and I had so much patience for them in the past, like what we were talking about before. Like I've so I had so much patience for them in the past and now and and and, and I just don't understand and I don't have as much patience. Like I saw the bitter tears of Petra von Kant recently, which just blew me away at the time. And I'm like, ah, I don't feel as connected to it anymore. I don't feel as connected to that film anymore. That's a film that I that's funny. Yeah, I, I I don't go back to Fassbender films for some reason. I had that sort of thing with the German New Wave, and I was yeah. so fascinated by him. But I don't feel any, you know. I'll still go back to a Vin Vendors film, and of course, Hartzog. But there's something about Fassbender's that just don't. Oh, Vin Vendors! That's another film that really meant a lot to me. Um, Wings of Desire. Oh yeah, oh. I absolutely love that film. Yeah, it's beautiful. It is stunning. It's stunning, and just the, the the there's something about the genius of the way he uses peter falk <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who, who else could have been that character so. yeah <laughs> absolutely and the way that it's photographed and the whole the way that the the the, the, the photographs of, of the sort of these these long dolly shots of the people in the subway and the wonderful that's a great use of voiceover yeah oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. A literary yeah, voiceover yeah and yet it doesn't feel encumbering it's freeing Maybe that's the rule with a voiceover. As long as it's freeing, as mm -hmm. long as it adds freedom and doesn't, isn't just an excuse and you're not just sort of fixing something. Right, right. You're not just gluing two scenes together. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it really creates freedom and dimension, dimension uh, 
that you go deep. And that's a classic example. Like you're sitting there watching people sitting on the subway and you're hearing what they're thinking about from this point of view, yeah. I guess, of an angel, right? And, yeah. and it's like, and it's an ex, so it's so actually that makes me want to see that film again. I haven't seen it in a while. And yeah, and it's kind of free association too. It's not that they're thinking in a sort of coherent, no. straight line sort no, of No, not at all. Yeah. But it's also like what, what, what Joe was saying about how, you know, sometimes what you're lacking in an adaptation is that is the, is the voice of the literary voice. But that's an example of using the literary voice and using literature. Right. Who wrote it? Wasn't it a hand? Who wrote, who wrote the, the script? Was that Benders himself or was it something? It's based, I think, on a, on a novel by an Austrian novelist, I feel like. I used to know these things. I used to have them memorized. <laughs> now I have a computer, so I don't have to have a brain, I guess. Um, who? Uh, uh, yeah, Peter Hanke and um, Richard Reitinger. Right, Peter Hanke, who's, who's, a, who's a, also a novelist. Is he a novelist? Yeah, famous Austrian novelist. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then he's so that's where that all that beautiful that beautiful stuff comes out of. Yeah, um, yeah. um, there's a there's a Jim Thompson novel that um, everyone sort of takes on faith. It truly is, and they they've tried to make it just this kind of unfilmable called "The Killer Inside Me," which is. Um, have you ever read it, Joe? Uh, yes, and I've seen I think two movie versions. Two two attempts at it, but the the basic catch is that it's about a sheriff in a small town who everybody likes, who's kind of dopey and affable, but he's actually a just brutal sociopath who's playing dumb and laughing at everybody who thinks he's this sweet guy. And obviously, the book's in the first person, but there's something about if you just shoot the one thing and have his voiceover giving it away, and the other, it, it seems almost anti-cinematic. It somehow just doesn't work. It's really frustrating. It's um, if somebody can ever crack that one, it would be. <laughs> I think it's usually a good rule of thumb to not try masterpieces to, you know, to try and keep away from Yeah, it. and then there's that. No, good point. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, also just because people then, you know, I remember being in the kid car with my kids as they took down the Harry Potter movies, like scene by scene. And they were like, can you believe that they cut out this one? <laughs> Never in my life am I making a movie like this. It's all around the world. All around the world. Kids yeah. are going to be like, can you believe what they left out? And they didn't like, what? <laughs> so it was really funny. I mean, they were really young. And they were yeah. Eviscerating these films. Um, because they get so attached sure. it's better to work with stuff nobody knows about or your own stuff that you don't feel bad about like just like tearing brutalizing. Apart. yeah yeah yeah, like yeah brutalizing in some way um uh it's funny the films that i they're filmed like like you know a film i really enjoyed that isn't that was a comedy that I really liked. It was Married to the Mob. Did you ever see that? Sure, yeah. I loved that film. And I thought that was a really wonderful example of, I don't know, there's just something about the way that he did the comedy. I, do you think it holds up now? I don't think I've seen it in a while. Yeah. No, I mean, no, it's still, it's still it? good. It's still good. That, that would not surprise me. Um, his, his, his best films do seem to hold up. But yeah, I, I've been seeing it since it came out. Um, yeah, I, I I have saw it once since it came out, and I just loved it. 
Um, I really love David Lynch's films. I think that Blue Velvet had a big impact on me um, in, in that time, definitely. The, the, the whole painterly vibe of it, the way that, the way that he uses atmosphere, it's like the way that he, uh, particularly that film, maybe others as well, but probably that one the most. Um, there was the relationship of kitsch and violence I thought was so beautifully. I remember seeing that in a theater, I think the day it came out and just every now and then you just have that sense that you're watching a movie that you're gonna be, you know, talking about for the rest of your life and going back to again and again. And, and uh, it's just, everything about it is, is yeah. stunning, is stunning. And I, and I feel like it's him. What do, what do you think of this? I think it, it feels, cause he was trying to sort of um, restart his career, I guess, after Dune and so forth. And Blue Velvet feels like his attempt to kind of not go full David Lynch, but to do a genre film. So these kind of constraints on him. And within those constraints, he finds this absolute master. It's pretty, it's pretty full David Lynch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very much so. Absolutely. So he can't help himself. I mean, it, it is quintessential yeah. Lynch, but it, it feels almost like the restrictions he's placed on himself are one of the things that helps make it so amazing. Is that I agree. But also the restrictions are restrictions which are themselves part of the subject, right? American culture, Americana, like it kind of, it's, it feels like a, that was Cirque kind yeah. of film. Oh, sure. Yes, yeah. the, 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 that picture has a lot in common with, with Cirque. <laughs> uh, right? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like Douglas Cirque, which if, in if, itself is already ironed. If, if like, Douglas Cirque had decided to show pictures of the lawn and then go underneath it and show all the bugs and <laughs> weird creatures <laughs> killing <Yeah>. each other. <laughs> But I feel like Cirque already has a little bit of that going on. Like it's that, and it and has that prettiness. That's oh yeah, no Cirque is great. He's he's yeah, he's great. An imitation of life, um, I think was one of my favorites. Written on the wind. Written on the wind. It's opera. It's grand opera. I love written on the wind so much. I love it. I love it. And I love the overblown kind of color of it all. It's so yeah. delicious, especially right now. Like I just could eat that with a spoon right now. <laughs> <laughs> I love that stuff. I know. Yeah. It's great because it's it has you know, it's very I don't know, it's kind of it's very nourishing on a, a lot of different levels. Like on a purely sensory level, it's nourishing because it's just, just joy. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. Joyous to look at. But it's also really has a dark way of looking at american culture as well which is so great because when it, when you get with, with with material like magnificent obsession and all that heaven allows which are you know uh, actually remakes of, of pictures that were made in the 30s um and and they're and they're they're at heart very treacly but uh the way he presents them is so ironic that it's uh, it, it, the, the artifice of it just sort of sails past you and you just you actually get involved in it it's not like you're sitting and looking out the window and saying, well, is it, aren't these people corny because of the things they think it, it's, it's, he's, he's like right in there with them and, and he makes right. you be in there with them. And he shows you that it's all that glitters is not gold and everything that's so bright and wonderful is actually dark and furtive and, and sick. And um, it's, yeah, it's interesting. Cause it's, it's what you're saying is that they, it's, he doesn't achieve an ironic, um, result through distancing himself from character rather right. he's right in there with he the embraces character. it yeah but somehow you still see him 
him just you know you're there and their and their performances are totally real and compelling but there's something about the way that he you know makes these scenes happen directs these scenes that you understand that it's not just totally straight you know he, he that's the magic part. It's maybe that outsider's view, you know, the, uh, the immigrant who comes to America and, and sees it through different eyes. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. And, and there's still that element, as you're talking about with Bergman, there is a little bit of, of horror to his stuff. Um, I mean, my God, you know, Gene Wyman's kids bringing her that television set. Oh, I know. <laughs> oh, it's so awful. Hi, Mom. Now that you're 40, isn't she 40 in that film? Or something? It's and just you know, like, you know, now, that, now that you're over and serve no function the whatsoever. Kids, the kids in those movies are, are constantly horrible and, <laughs> yes. and just awful and doing terrible things to their parents. Yeah. Uh, in my, one of my favorites is There's Always Tomorrow, where... Uh, Frederick Marie uh, is, you know, happily married to Joan Bennett, and he's got kids. And then he meets his old flame, Barbara Stanwyck, who's in town for, you know, whatever reason. And um, and of course they start to maybe, sort of maybe hit it off. And when the kids figure that out, they do everything they can do to make their lives completely miserable. Oh, <laughs> I've never, never seen that one. Like it's that. in black and white. And the and the stand-in for Frederick Murray is this robot doll because he's a toy maker. And uh, and there's, there's all these shots of this doll like like falling off the edge of the table because his, his life is ruined. It's really great. Ah, I gotta see it. No, I mean like, yeah, he was also kind of a standalone guy, wasn't he? He was kind of unto himself, Cirque. Yeah. He seems like. Well, he had a, he had a, he had a, a big career at, at Universal doing everything that they would throw at him: westerns and comedies and you know all that kind of stuff. But then. Once he got into that soap opera groove, uh, it was like, oh, this one is good. Let's give him more soap operas. And so the, there's this whole period in the 50s where he's, he's doing nothing but remaking 30s weebies. Well, that's really interesting. I think part of the reason that they survive so well now is that the irony isn't. It's like he had a kind of way of looking at them. Yeah, and it's also the way we view the 50s. You know, we have a we have a particular view of that era uh, yeah. with all of its faults. And I mean, I grew up in that era, so it was a great time to be a kid because everything was child oriented. <laughs> there was nothing adult really going on at all. Um, but and, and also there was, you know, there's there's very few people of color in his pictures, except for uh, magne- uh, uh, imitation of life, which is, of right. course, um, um, still a pretty potent movie. I think I I thought it was really powerful. Is that is that a film that was remade or was yes that, a, that was a, it was a black and white movie with Claudette Colbert before. Oh wow, that's so interesting! I didn't know that. Japanese, but moving right along. Yes, sorry, <laughs> we stopped to frolic in Circland. Um. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, it's just endless. The number of movies that have i don't know we could just keep obviously we were running out of time but like we definitely i i i think also my taste in films is quite fairly broad i mean i i can enjoy all different kinds of films in different ways what's a movie you think that somebody who has a picture of you from your work would be astounded to find out that you love is that i I don't want to put you on the spot, but I just thought that would be 
Um, well, I really enjoyed the movie Tin Cup. <laughs> <laughs> At the time, I really liked it. But there was, I don't, I'm not sure if, I, I don't know if like at the time I just thought it was like so enjoyable. I like um, I like comedies that work. You know, I really like comedies that work. I don't necessarily get the kind of nourishment or look at them for my work, but I also am really interested in how comedy works because I think comedy is really hard. And to make a comedy that has a bit of artfulness in it is extremely hard. And I mean, like, you know, uh, so I'm, I, I am really, I always, I'm always interested in finding films that give that kind of, that give pleasure, even if it's just that they're funny. And then if they're funny and they're tricky and they're, you know, kind of magical, then like, oh, then I'm in love. Um, well, you should look at Lubitsch and Billy Wilder. Oh yeah, then I have, but I, I always love to go back to that. To the, I mean, let me think. Let me think. Which Billy Wilder is my favorite? Which is your favorite? Um, my favorite Billy Wilder is probably Ace in the Hole, but that just makes me a misogynist, awful person. <laughs> <laughs> Misanthrope, Joe. Misanthrope. That's not my favorite Billy Wilder. It, it's got great dialogue. The apartment. Oh, isn't it? Oh, the apartment. Yeah, it's so good. The apartment. So good. Who directed the Out of Towners? Um, Arthur, uh, uh, Arthur Hiller. Well, another film that I absolutely love is um, Philadelphia Story. Mm. Oh, yeah. I love that film. I don't know what it is. I just love that film. It's just so, to me, a trait, you know, I don't know. It's just, it has so many of the elements of. The irony, you know, making fun of rich people is always so much fun. And, you know, and then you have Jimmy Stewart as the as the interloping photographer and Catherine Hepburn as the heiress. And then have you, you know, seen and the then musical? Probably remarriage, which is a great subgenre, which is actually Maggie's plan is a comedy of remarriage in itself. Um, have you seen the musical remake of uh, Philadelphia Story? No, you mean recently? No, well, high society. Oh, you mean high society? Oh, yeah. yeah. I love it. My husband prefers it, but I, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Should have an argument. But um, yeah, no, I do like, I, I, I love high society color. The color in high society is so wonderful. Yeah. I somehow, I don't know why I, I prefer. Um, no, no, Philadelphia Story was, was there first, you know. Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the original. Yeah, no, I love them both. There's something about the world that transcribes too that whenever I see it, I kind of want to live there, even though it's so artificial. Exactly, because it, you know what it is, is that there's something so reassuring about how they just, they're both utterly superficial, but also kind of sad. There's something, there's something acknowledging of sadness within their banter. Know how to put it and it emptiness. Made, you know, yeah. you know it's, it's not necessarily just emptiness it's like that they they're tolerant like you know i think that's true of the character of uh uh catherine hepburn and carrie grant and the reason that 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 her absurd boyfriend who she's going to marry is so is so ridiculous and so unappealing is he's intolerant and has no imagination he's brittle 
Whereas they have this tolerance and, and they're kind of, but they're also a little bit like exhausted nobility. You know what I mean? They're, they're the exhausted nobility. And he's the sort of striving, you know, guy. And they're this, these exhausted, but infinitely appealing kind of people. I you, should, you should see a previous movie by the same director with the same two stars called Holiday. Um, which is uh, uh, which is another is an earlier Grant and Hepburn movie, uh, which about again about rich people, but it's um, it's in many ways it's actually a better movie than Philadelphia Story. Good Lord! All right, I'll take a look and we'll discuss this. Okay, we can have another discussion. <laughs> yeah, I mean that whole when you open that up and you think about Lubitsch, like Ninochka, and. Well, what's the one where Cary Grant does all the, he's waiting in the hall and he does all the somersaults while he's waiting. Isn't that Lubitsch? He's uh, no, that's Holiday. Is that Holiday? That's Holiday. That's Holiday. Oh, that's a wonderful film. But I haven't seen that in many years. I Wait, okay, so that's, Catherine Hepburn is a sister. Oh yeah, yeah. Catherine Hepburn is the sister of the man, a woman that, she, that he's supposed that to he's marry. He's supposed to marry, right. Yeah, I have seen this movie. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay, I'm, <laughs> I'm having the same reaction she did. I've never seen no, it. It's I'm a great realizing. movie. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Song. Lou Ayers is the drunken brother, and I love that. Edward Everett Horton. It's it's really, it's really good. I think one of the things that I like about Philadelphia's story so much has to do with the way they use the exterior so much. It's it's mm -hmm. the holiday is much more inside, which mm -hmm. understandably so, and quite a lot at night upstairs in the in the nursery and you know downstairs whereas you know the lucky story has this feeling of like and also the way they use the dawn the dawn at a country house i i, I guess the atmosphere a sense of atmosphere is one of like the light sense of light coming into the, it's very hard for me to kind of like pinpoint but holiday and it's, and it's all on a soundstage <laughs> that is unbelievable is it really all of yeah, of course, yeah. i'm sure of course yeah no, Holiday's great. So that's Lubitsch, yeah. Oh, Lubitsch is... How do they... The Lubitsch touch, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Is that, the, is that the great story? Who is, who is the screenwriter, Joe, who gave him a stack of paper and said, put the Lubitsch touch on this? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I do, I, look, I could talk to you. We could start talking about 1940s films and we would be here. <laughs> <laughs> Tuesday because it's actually like that's more recent for me like that funnily enough the older films like the 1940s film and 30s films I've been ex sort of appreciating more recently and I'm always mm. open to any suggestions that anybody has about these kinds of films because like again like the great comedies the comedies that were really people uh you know Crack that! It, I, I, a lot of those were made in that period. Well, that's what um, the pandemic is for. That's right. Yeah, but anyway, no, I feel like I've had a. I mean, whatever. Any, no, it's great. I really enjoy talking to you guys. Well, thanks. Oh, thank you so much for doing this. Um, we really appreciate it. It's a blast, and now I'm going to be spending the evening watching Wings of Desire and uh, uh, Written on the Wind again, even though I had other plans. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to go do a little bit of watching myself. What was the one that I didn't see that you said something about the Cirque movie? Oh, uh, uh, there's always tomorrow. Yeah, there's always tomorrow. I haven't seen that. So, uh -huh. uh, yeah, go. how fun! 
who says we don't give our guests anything, Joe? Um, Rebecca, thank you so thank much. You so much. Uh, thank you so much. I love your podcast. So I'm looking forward to hearing more of them. So great oh, wonderful. Well, we're, thank we're you. looking forward to having you back. Yes, we'll so have we you back. occasionally have people back. Oh, okay. Yeah. And and in, in the new world, maybe when you're uh, out here in person, again, even yes, maybe. we we used to do it in a studio, and people would come. We'd sit in a room with them, and <laughs> it, was, cool. it was crazy. You know, you That's had to shower. You had to you had to wear <laughs> pants. We don't um, have to, we're not wearing pants right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm wearing pants. <laughs> well, that that makes one of us. Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. We can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made me. Stay safe out there, folks. For over a hundred years, the world has been captivated by Hollywood. The uh, stuff that dreams are made of. Where stars are born. But just beneath the stardust lie a million more fascinating stories that when sewn together form an incredible history. The Secret History of Hollywood. Available now wherever you get podcasts. Mm -hmm.